Well, I'm glad to be with you again. I count this a great privilege to be able to be here this week to get to know you and to have a chance to work with you in this meeting. And I, I certainly knew when I came up here, I wasn't here because you were desperate for preaching or teaching. But uh, it's a privilege of mine to be able to come and talk about the wisdom literature, a subject that I need. And that, oh, I think it's basic, and I realize this audience has uh, I read those books a few times, some of the younger ones maybe not as much as the older. It's still something that we need to concentrate on and think about. And uh, the last couple of nights we've been talking about some lessons from Job, and tonight we finish our, our thoughts from the book of Job. And uh, we really finish with the heart of what Job is all about. You know, when we think about the defining characteristics of God, um, what would we offer as that which is uniquely divine? Well, we could say that uh, God is eternal. Only God is Alpha and Omega. No other, no creature could claim such. And that's true. Or we could say that um, God is, is the first cause. God is the beginning of all things. And that's true. But I think another that would fit in that same category, when you talk about things that are uniquely divine, it is the fact that God is beyond judgment. And I think the book of Job presents that fact as the great lesson of the book of Job. You know, when you talk to people, you talk to religious people, and you ask them, uh, what do they think of? And they think of the book of Job. We think of Job's suffering. Or we might think of the friends and their uh, conduct. Or, but I tell you, I think the key, the, the central message of the book of Job is not that we understand all the reasons why things happen, but that we know God. And because we know God, then we can hang on. Because we know God, the rest of it is well. And so I want to present, I think, a rather simple lesson. My preaching is rather simple. I found through the years that the most effective fellows that I've enjoyed listening to are rather simple in their approach. Some of us don't have a choice. Uh, I'm, I'm a simple guy. But I think these are very important lessons. We're looking at the last, beginning there, chapter 38, 39, 40, 41, 42, just a sampling through there. When the book comes to its climax, what does God say to Job? And what does it mean? And we want to remember something about that uh, tonight. God is beyond judgment. Some men think they are. Um, I don't know if you were exposed to this campaign a few years ago. You saw this on bumper stickers or shirts. Somebody would say, only God can judge me. Which I guess they thought sounded noble. It sounds mighty arrogant to me. Somebody said they figured out the code for that. Only God can judge me, which means, why don't you shut up and let me sin in peace? Oh, well, that's about right. And that's the way some people think. You know, I'm above judgment. They're not above judgment. But God is above judgment. And the idea of putting God on trial, it's the great indictment, isn't it, of our world. Um, instead of men gathering together to try to figure out how God will judge them, men today gather around and figure out how they judge God. 
And that just in a nutshell is the problem. The arrogance and the lack of reverence and humility that men have is the problem. We see it all around us. Um, Christopher Hitchens, you may know that name, he's dead now, but he was a celebrity atheist uh, a few years ago. And uh, he wrote uh, several books, including this one. You know, the old children's prayer, God is great, God is good. God is not great, he said. And he's going to tell you why God is not great. Because, you know, he's, when you're smarter than God, you can judge God. Uh, is it too modern to notice that there is nothing, talking about the Bible, is there nothing about rape or nothing about protection of children from cruelty, nothing about genocide? Or is it exactly in context to notice that some of these very offenses are about to be positively recommended? He goes on to write, nothing proves the man-made character of religion as obviously as the sick mind that designed hell, unless it is the sorely limited mind that's failed to describe heaven, except as a place either of worldly comfort, eternal tedium, or, as Tertullian thought, uh, continually rel continual relish in the torture of others. I didn't even know that Tertullian wrote the Bible. But anyway, apparently he's one of the Bible writers. But, you know, he's, uh, he's judged the Bible. It's not too much hell, not enough heaven, too much this, not enough that. Now, if you can imagine a man thinking he's smart enough to edit the Bible and to judge God on that basis, well, then you really have got the spirit of this world. Even religious people. There's another famous book you may have read or at least heard of, uh, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, written by a rabbi by the name of Kushner. And, and this is, to me, worse than the atheist. At one point he writes, Are you capable of forgiving and loving God when you have found out that He's not perfect? Even when He has let you down and disappointed you by permitting bad luck and sickness and cruelty in His world? And permitting some of these things to happen to you? Can you learn to love and forgive Him? in spite of his limitations, as Job does? Is there another book called Job that he might be reading? Where, you know, the one where God asks Job's forgiveness and he grants it? Job had pled for his day in court, if you pardon the expression. 23 and verse 3, just one of many examples. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, Job said, that I might come even to his seat and I would lay my case before him and I would fill my mouth with arguments and I would know what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, he would pay attention to me. There an upright man could argue with him and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. In his last speech, the last thing he says, really. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it to me as a crown. I would give him an account of all my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. Well, we all know the story. Job got his, uh, his audience, but it didn't go like he thought. Not at all. If you have your Bible open, you turn with me to the 38th chapter of Job. 
And here we have what I guess is technically called a theophany, an appearance of God to man. And then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee, and answer thou me. I reckon in in some faint measure, every father in this room recognizes this speech. It's the speech of of a father who's going to get his son straight. It's a plain, blunt speech. And, and the, the words of Jehovah in this don't amount to an apology by any means. There's no apology here. There's no explanation here. Again, it's amazing how people who write about Job seem to know so little about it. One fellow writing a survey of the Old Testament. I suppose this is especially designed for people who don't know much about the Bible. And so this guy's going to help them get on the right road. And here's what he says about Job. He said, this book deals with the theoretical problem of pain in the life of the godly. That's an interesting way to say that. It undertakes to answer the question, why do the righteous suffer? And we say again, if that's the point of the book of Job, it fails to reach its point. Because you never do find out why the righteous suffer reading Job, as far as I know. That's not the point of the book of Job. And certainly, uh, God doesn't offer to Job in these speeches, any clarification. Uh, He doesn't explain to him. let me tell you why I let this happen to you. Let me tell you what I had in mind here. None of that. He doesn't leave the reader with any full understanding of any specific plan that he had for Job, or for that matter, any other righteous sufferer. What is made plain is this simple fact. God's wisdom, God's power, God's goodness, God's greatness. That's the central point of the book of Job. And that's the great lesson to take from it. Is the greatness of God and how that affects the way we handle problems and life in this world. You know, when you think about God and His greatness, the attributes that make God who He is, uh, we remember the statement of Paul in Romans chapter 1 and verse 20. Uh, that since the foundation of the world, His eternal power and Godhood has been displayed. That power is oftentimes grouped into these three categories. God's omnipresence, His omniscience, His omnipotence. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. His omniscience, there's no creature hidden from His sight. All things are open to Him. His omnipotence, He is almighty. That's what John said. And no one else is almighty. Only God is almighty. And my contention is, and and you know this too, I think all of these characteristics are emphasized in the book of Job. In these speeches, God comes back to all of these categories to show Job his immense power. In chapter 38 and verse 4, he begins, uh, you know, Paul in, in Romans, we mentioned a moment ago, so that you can look at what's made and understand the nature of God. And that's exactly where God started with Job. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measures? Surely you know. 
Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Now that's a tough speech and it's going to get worse. He's putting Job in his place here. Job has allowed the circumstances to cause him to speak rashly. And God, not out of anything but love, is intending to bring his son back where he needs to be. But it's a very blunt speech as he says to Job, now who exactly do you think you are? Where were you when I made the worlds and laid the foundation thereof? It reminds us of that great psalm, Psalm 148. That psalm of praise. Praise ye the Lord. Praise ye the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise ye Him, all His angels. Praise ye Him, all His host. Sun and moon. Praise ye Him, all your stars of light. Praise Him, ye heavens of heavens and ye waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created. God not only made the world, He spoke the worlds into existence. And He reminds Job of who He's talking to. And there are, aren't there, in the book of Job, in the speech that God gave to Job, the speeches, if you will, there are so many wonderful, beautiful passages that are so descriptive, such great word pictures. For example, in 38 and verse 12, God asked Job, he says, have you ever commanded the morning at any time during your life? Do you know where the dawn lives? Where it seizes the edge of the earth and shakes the wicked out of it? Like clay is molded by the signet ring, the earth's hills and valleys stand out like the colors of a garment. And then the wicked, from the wicked, their light is withheld. And their upraised arm is broken. What a great picture that is. He starts out, I guess, by asking Job, in essence, uh, Job, who made the sun? We ask our kids that sometimes. Who made the sun? I heard about a young guy, a little boy. He was used to getting in trouble, I guess. And uh, one time his parents asked him, uh, who made the sun? He said, not me. He about decided those uh, who did this questions were better answered with a negative. Well, he was right. He didn't make the sun. I didn't make the sun. Job didn't make the sun, but God did. And the description here, you know, you, you see, you can see in the words the, the dawn rising up and exposing the undulation of the hills and the colors that are there. And it's just like a, a signet going through wet clay, and you can see the imprint then. And it's a beautiful picture. And by the way, that chases off all the wicked folks who do their meanness at night. Their light is darkness and their darkness is gone. And God's in charge of that. Or uh, in uh, the 38th chapter in verse 34, another example. Can you t call out the clouds so that the abundant water drenches you? Can you command the lightning so that it goes forth? Who has the wisdom to be able to count the clouds or empty the water jars of heaven. Very seldom do I have uh, such an assistance from the weather. <laughs> uh, one time I was in West Virginia in a little church out in the country, and I was preaching. I think that day I was talking about the subject of superstition and what happens to spirits after they go. And I said, uh, you know, I, I talked about how unbiblical it was to believe that ghosts are running around, rattling chains, and living in folks' attics. 
And about that time, they had a little side door here. That thing opened up all on its own. It just creaked just like that. And I went away, kicked that door closed. Sometimes you don't need that kind of help. Doesn't, doesn't hurt tonight. Who made the rain? Who's in charge of the lightning? No man. No angel. God. God has this power. In chapter 38 and verse 22, he asked Job, have you entered the storehouses of the snow or seen where the hail is stored, which I've reserved for the tribulation to come, for the day of battle and of war? I like history. I don't know much, but I enjoy learning about it. But it is, uh, you don't have to read much history to see how powerful the effect of weather is in the history of men. And I mean, uh, there are whole nations that have been affected by this war that was turned on this battle that all came down to uh, some entrance of weather that whether it was, I guess this is supposed to be Napoleon retreating from Russia, or whether it's D-Day, or whether it's the stars and their courses fought against Sisera. Now the question is, who's really behind all that? I think it's God, His power, His providence. One of my favorite pictures, and yours too, this is horse country. I didn't realize how much that was true. And one of the great scenes in the book of Job from the speech that the Lord gave is this picture of the war horse in chapter 39 and verse 19. And I'm sure I'm not the only one that finds this to be a favorite. He asks, he says, did you give horses their strength and the flowing hair about their necks? Did you make them able to jump like grasshoppers or to frighten people with their snorting? Before horses are ridden into battle, they paw at the ground, proud of their strength, laughing at fear. They rush toward the fighting, while the weapons of their riders rattle and flash in the sun. Unable to stand still, they gallop eagerly into battle when trumpets blast. Stirred by the distant smells and sounds of war, they snort in reply to the trumpet. You know, there are a lot of inventive weapons of war that can do a lot of damage, but they are amazing machines. But there ain't nothing men has built that's better than a horse. And that horse is an amazing creature. And God said, I made that. I like 39 and verse 26. He asked Job, did you teach the hawk to fly? Was it John Denver who used to sing a song which said something about how that uh, fellow would be a poor man if he never saw an eagle fly? That sticks in my mind. It is something to see one of those big raptors flying. They are magnificent. Did you teach them how to fly, Job? He says here, did you teach them to fly south? That seems to be referring to the migratory pattern of these animals. I don't know much about this. You may know a lot more than I do. They tell me that they're birds. They, they fly from Canada to South America. That's several thousand miles. I'll tell you something. I don't think I can get out of Shelby but without a help from Google. How in the world does a bird do that? Well, it's just, just accidental, just incidental, just evolution. <laughs> what does that mean? 
Who taught the hawk to fly? That's what I want to know. Well, I believe I do know. God taught the hawk to fly. Talking about birds, he mentioned several. But one we want to mention, of course, is our old friend, the ostrich. The ostrich does not get uh, a lot of love in, in some ways. Uh, doesn't come out looking too smart. Uh, not too smart, apparently, despite its appearance. Uh, the old ostrich, he has a brain about the size of a walnut. And he says here that uh, uh, very uh, careless about its young, it seems. And he says, I'll tell you why the ostrich is careless about his young, Job, and why the ostrich is not very smart. Because I didn't make him very smart. But, he said, I'll tell you what I did give him. I gave him the ability to outrun a horse. He can outrun a car, at least the ones that I've driven. Well, it's God's providence. It's His will. He is in charge. And that's true about all the animals. They're made the way they are by God. We take our kids to the zoo, and it's a great teaching opportunity, isn't it? And we say, look at this animal Look at what it does. And as they get a little older, they begin to appreciate these things. And then we reinforce this fact. God made that. And God made that this way. And I think about all the different animals. They're large and they're small. And they have all these characteristics and all these different appearances. And there was an artist behind that. And there was an engineer behind that. And there was a power behind that to make and to sustain these things. And it takes our breath away because we know that's not an accident. That's God. Who is like the Lord? God all-powerful. Tell you something else that he tells Job. That he is indeed ever-present. Job 38 and verse 25 reads this way. He asked Job, who has divided a water course for the overflowing of waters? Verse 26, to cause it to rain on the earth where no man is, on the wilderness wherein is no man, to satisfy the desolate and wasteland, to cause the bud of the tender herb to spring forth. Maybe I'm emphasizing something too much here. But I think I read the book of Job several times before that verse really grabbed me. That what he's saying to Job is that I take care of the world, not just where men are. I take care of the world where men are not. And I take care of the animals where men are not. And I do that because they belong to me. They're mine. And the earth is mine. I'm going to tell you something here that I'm going to explain it. I am an environmentalist. Now, let me be clear about something. That word has been greatly misused. And whenever I see on the news this rather kooky crowd going around uh, trying to make a goddess out of the earth, or this is especially galling to me, somebody talking about how they're going to save the earth. 
and I, I have restrained myself to this point, but only barely to go up to them and say, well, please tell me the superpower you have to, to, to save the earth. And by the way, thank you, because apparently if it were not for you, we would be destroyed. So what is it? And when they tell me that it's, uh, I use paper straws, I'm a, little bit, I'm a little bit disappointed, I have to admit. And, and, and worse than that, uh, I, I think, and, and I'm not here to talk about politics or about such questions like that, but where it becomes a spiritual issue to me, here's a, an example. This is from the NPR, National Public Radio, if you're familiar with them, site, website. Uh, and they had an article here last year, study shows young people have a lot of anxiety around climate change. And when I read that, I thought, no kidding. Probably listening to NPR. That's where a lot of it comes from, among other places. Um, an article that I found uh, likewise uh, last year. Four in ten young people fear having children due to climate crisis. This shrill uh, dooms saying it is affecting young people. And some of them are members of the church. Some of them are our kids. And they're looking and listening to people who sit in high places and wear the mantle of science and tell us all about how that if you don't give us money, uh, well, then we got 10 years and we're just all going to die. You know the advantage I have being an old guy? I've heard this all my life. All my life. I think they started Earth Day when I was just in elementary school. And all my life. Here's a, I'm not going to belabor this, just hang with me just a second. Here's, a, here's a, an article um, written from Time Magazine. If you can't trust Time Magazine, who can you trust? 1974, another ice age? Um, meteorologist studying temperature over a period of several decades uh, are, are, are much concerned here that we are heading for another ice age, they said. And I, I heard that back then. But then here's another guy writing about the same time, or lecturing, a guy from Stanford. And uh, he's wasting no time, the article says, trying to convince people that drastic action is needed to head off what he foresees as a catastrophic explosion fueled by runaway population growth and a limited world food supply and contamination of the planet by man. By the way, I just saw the other day, here's another thing. I just saw the other day, we now have an underpopulation problem. He said, we, we, have a, 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 we don't uh, have replacement levels of population in a number of societies. They listed it off, went about that. I said, for 40 years you've been telling people the earth's too crowded. Now suddenly, are these guys right about anything? He said, we must realize that unless we are extremely lucky, everybody will disappear in a cloud of blue steam in 20 years. This was written in 1969. Um, you know, more recently, uh, Mr. Gore from the state of Tennessee, Mr. Gore predicted in 2008 that the North Polar ice cap would be completely ice-free in five years. 
we could go on with this. Um, I'll, I'll share this with you. There was an interview between Jim Hansen, who was uh, one of these fellows who believes in this uh, doomsaying. In 1988, he went before Congress and lectured about uh, the greenhouse effect and how we were headed for disaster. Anyway, several years later, a guy caught up with him, 2001, a guy caught up with him and asked him about what he thought was coming in the next 20 years. And uh, they were in New York when they did the interview, and he said, well, he said, I'll tell you one thing, the West Side Highway will uh, be underwater by that time. That's the West Side Highway, by the way, picture last year. It's fine. It's okay. Uh, but, you know, of course, they just move on to another prediction. Uh, this was um, a sign in the, I think this is from Glacier uh, Monument National Park up in Montana. And uh, in the park, they had uh, this sign up for several years, and it said that uh, goodbye to the glaciers, that uh, they're rapidly shrinking due to human-caused climate change. Well, I don't know how they know. Anyway, computer models indicate that the glaciers will be gone by the year 2020. Well, they're not gone. They had to take the sign down. What's the point? The point is that all of this doomsaying can affect the minds of young people who haven't seen this scam for 40 years. And, uh, and, and it can affect them spiritually. And, and I think it's a good thing for me as a teacher and for us as parents and grandparents to remind our children of that promise that God made to Noah that while the earth remains Seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. I ain't that kind of environmentalist. But I'll tell you what kind of environmentalist I need to be. Is one that understands that the earth belongs to God. I love that old song, this is my father's world. And it all reminds us of God. Nature sings. The glory of God. And I rest me in the thought of rocks and trees and skies and seas, his hands, the wonders wrought. You ever notice how many times in the Bible that lesson is taught? Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Heaven and the heaven of heavens belong to the Lord, your God. The earth and all that's in it, it's the Lord's, it's not mine. In Psalm 104, the psalmist writes, You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Besides them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly. Cedars of Lebanon that he planted, in them the birds build their nest. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. 
He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows it's time for setting. You make darkness and it's night when all the beasts of the forest creep about. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures, your trees, your mountains. They belong to God. They're not mine. And that's why we have a respect for the environment. Because it doesn't belong to us. You know, in a sense we say, well, God made the earth for man. But the earth is His. And He cares about the earth where there's not a man. I used to compare it to the idea of renting. You know, if you're renting somebody's house, uh, it's not yours to tear up. You might, it might be yours to use. I think that's a poor analogy. We're not renting anything. We're guests. And we ought to consider the earth in that light. So however, that makes me an environmentalist. I hope I, I, I never forget that. Job 38, verse 41, talking about how God is everywhere. God's presence is where men are not. Among the great examples of that, we find this reference. And when starving young ravens cry out to me for food, do you satisfy their hunger? Job, who feeds the ravens when they cry out to me? Um, I met Brother Peeler the other night. I, I met his brother a few years ago, and I heard him talking about this passage. And he made a point that, that I had not considered before. He said, you know, Job is, uh, uh, God, rather, to Job pictures the idea of the ravens crying out and God answering. He said, I think there's a direct reference here back to something that Job said. Because the same word cry is used. Back in the 19th chapter of Job in verse 7, Job was speaking. And he said, he complained, Behold, I cry out of wrong, and I am not heard. I cry aloud, but there is no judgment. And he made the point, and I think he's right. That he was saying to Job, God was saying to Job, Job, you think that I don't hear you cry? I hear the ravens cry. And I answer their cry in time. How could you doubt that I would hear you? I, I like what Mr. Edmund Morris wrote about this, very similar point. With God's detailed reminder of how he cares for his creation, especially the animals, there's also a general rebuke of Job for thinking that God might have forgotten him. As the Lord said, year of more value than many sparrows. The central message of Job and to us is not an explanation of why the righteous suffer, but rather a call to sound belief in creation. Under God, we can trust Him, no matter what comes our way in this life, knowing that in the balances of eternity, the judge of all the earth will do right. That's exactly right. That's the great message of the book of Job. The omniscient God. In 38 and verse 18, God asked, Have you considered the breadth of the earth? Tell me if thou knowest all things. And where is the way where light dwells? And where is the place of darkness that thou mayest bring everything to its bounds and understand the paths of the house thereof? God says, Job, can you explain the mystery of light? You know, 
when I was in school, I remember in science studying light from a scientific point of view. And there may be folks here, nearly everybody I'm sure knows more than I do about this subject, but I can remember there being quite a discussion in those days about what light is and its nature. And there, was, uh, uh, there were some who said, well, uh, light behaves like a wave. And others said, no, light behaves like a particle. And, and how can we reconcile these two things? And so our teacher said that the latest theory was that light was a wave particle. Hope that clears it up for you. Didn't for me. I still don't know what that means. I'm not sure she knew what it meant when she said it. I found this cartoon the other day, and it probably only amuses me. There's an old guy, you know, paying the bills. And uh, he says to his wife, uh, once and for all, I'm going to figure out what I'm paying for. Tell the, the light company I'll pay for this electricity when they tell me is light a wave or a particle. <laughs> Amen. You know who knows the answer to that? The God who spoke light into existence. We're trying to still figure out after all these years what it is. And God said, light be. And light was. Now that's God. And here's Job. And here's me somewhere down here. Don't forget the greatness of God. Also in 38.17, just one more example along this line. God asked Job, have you, uh, have the gates of, of death been revealed to you? Have you seen the, the gates of the deepest darkness? Job, you don't know about this planet. What do you know about life after this life? Men still trying to offer their ideas about that. I've read a few books on Christian evidences over the last few years, and I don't know if you have have noticed this, but some of them are starting to continue to contain arguments that go back to the idea that we can, we can prove the existence of God by near-death experiences. And that makes me quite uneasy because, uh, again, I'm not an expert in the subject, but I just always assume when people claim after they've been through some great trauma that they saw this light or they saw this or that. And I think, well, man, when you cut blood off uh, to, your, uh, to your brain, I figure that uh, you're liable to see a lot of things. But there have been folks who've made uh, some money off of that very point. Let's see here. All righty. Let's try this again. about to see uh, oh, there we go there we go thank you uh, you've probably seen these books in the bookstore uh, books like 90 minutes in heaven or the boy who came back from heaven I always feel sorry for this last guy 23 minutes in hell he had to go to torment to get his book deal but, you know, I, I don't believe these fellows are telling the truth. I'm not saying they're necessarily lying. Uh, maybe they are. At least one of them made up the story. You know, this middle one here, the Malarkeys, Alex Malarkey, you may know that story, you may not. It was a kid that was really badly hurt in a car wreck. Six years old, I think he was. Nothing funny about that, terrible thing. Anyway, he claimed he, he, he 
saw all kind of angels and, and such things. Well, uh, when he got a few years older, he admitted he made it up. And the dad didn't want to let go. He, he, they were selling books. But um, anyway, he was interviewed. Uh, and I read the uh, transcription of the interview. And uh, he said, I didn't die. And uh, I didn't uh, go to heaven. I said I went to heaven because I thought it would get me attention. When I made the claims that I did, I had never read the Bible. People have profited from lies and continue to. They should read the Bible, which is enough. The Bible is the only source of truth. I thought, that's exactly right. And that's the, the one source that people don't necessarily want to go to. But it's the only source that has the answers. Who knows about what's beyond this life? God and only God. And there is no God like our God. Let me conclude by going back to the end of the book of Job and noticing with you something that Job, uh, that God said to Job. And I, and I tell you, when I read this particular passage, you talk about being taken to the woodshed. Now Job is taken to the woodshed by God. But just like a good father, he does that because he loves him. And uh, he's not satisfied. He wants Job to come back to him in full heart and understanding. At this point, he says to Job, do you have power like God's? Can you thunder with a voice like his? Then dress yourself in majesty and dignity and clothe yourself in splendor and glory and unleash your outburst of anger. And look at who, those who are arrogant and put them down. Look at all who are arrogant <coughs> excuse me, and humble them. Crush wicked people wherever they are. Hide them completely in the dust and cover their faces in the hidden place. And then even I will praise you because of your right hand can save you. You don't like the way I'm running the universe, Job? Then you just do better. Show me. Now to receive that kind of lecture from the Lord, well, it had the effect that it was intended to have. And Job's a great man. And he certainly bows before his error. Job answered the Lord and said, I know you can do everything. And that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You ask who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? That's the first thing the Lord asked in chapter 38. Therefore I, I'm the man, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said I will question you and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but my eye sees you. And I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. And Job is never greater than he is at this moment. He was a great man. But uh, this is the greatest of the greatness. He is where every human being must be. Realizing that we're not big enough to be God. We, as I said earlier, you know it's true. We live in a world of folks who think they're in a position to judge God. They're as smart as God. Some of them write books. Others of them get on the radio or the television. And they have all kind of comments about 
about morality and what ought to be, and they have no use for God, they know better. Somebody needs to tell them, in the first place, you ain't qualified to be God. In the second place, the position is already filled. And that you must humble yourself to God. And maybe a fellow like me comes along, and I just don't understand why this happens, why that happens. And why does God allow this to happen? Those are certainly questions that uh, good people may ponder. But what they come back to is this old truth, as Brother Waldron used to say, don't question what God does till you know what God knows. And I don't know what God knows. But I know God. I always thought that 1 Peter chapter 5 had a lot in common with the ending of the book of Job and the great lesson of Job. That's where Peter writes, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God. He's writing to suffering people, suffering saints. And he says, humble yourselves therefore under the hand of the mighty God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him. For he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary is a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. Whom resist steadfast in the faith knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So Paul in Romans chapter 8 verse 22 said that the whole world groans and travails in pain until now. And people ask God why. And the saints of God sometimes might wonder why. And Job gives us the answer. As far as we have it, the answer is this, my grace is sufficient for thee. You just have to trust me. And I hope that this great lesson of faith might be of help to, to us if we're going through something now or if we're going through something that may happen tomorrow or next week, that you and I can keep this great book and its lesson in mind. I appreciate the kind way you listen. We're going to sing a song to encourage you. If you need to come forward, confess your faith in Christ and be baptized for the remission of sins, we hope that uh, you would avail yourself of that opportunity tonight. If you're here as one who is a child of God, needs the prayers of the saints, needs the help uh, of the Christians here, the intercession of the saints on your behalf, or maybe just a prayer of strengthening, whatever we can do to be a, of help to you, we ask you to let us know how, right now, while we do stand, while we sing.